Church Bibles on page 691 for our scripture reading, page 691. Right close to the middle, it's going to be a psalm, Psalm 104. Uh, real quick, um, we've got a praise I'd like to start with first. Olga tells us that Gabriel's leg is healing very well. Amen. That's why he's moved up to a walker, and he'll be on the walker a little bit longer. 
but his healing is going really well. He's got still got a couple of pins in that uh, femur. That's his top bone, right? Yeah, in that femur bone. And we just bless the Lord for what he's doing in little Gabriel's leg. So, uh, and the healing he's bringing there. Prayer request, uh, we want to remember Raul Jr., Raul and Nina's uh, son. Uh, I think he starts chemo the next week or so, is what we hear now. So we'll pray that the Lord work through that and that man can do what we can do, but only God can do what he does. That's what we pray. We'll see a miracle there. Uh, and for, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, just overwhelmed today by who God is, and it's uh, it's a humbling experience. But um, Kylie Copeland, uh, Ricky and Amanda's little girl, uh, she's got some issues with her little heartbeat and all that going on. Uh, she's about, I think Amanda's 33 weeks, plus or minus in there. Not full pregnancy yet, uh, but the, uh, the Lord is working in that situation for Kylie. And we're going to continue to pray that there's an amazing victory there. Uh, not just physically, but always the Lord is most interested in spiritual things of the spirit nature. And we just pray the Lord would be glorified in all that. Uh, so if you would, we'll uh, remember those this week. <clears throat> we're going to be reading 104. It's a little bit long, but it's an amazing reminder of who our God is and all the things around us that, that are subject to his command. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over. And wonders, I'm sorry, that they may not return to cover the earth. Amen amazing reminder of who the Lord is. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We, uh, Lord, we're so humbled uh, when we take time to slow down and remember who you are. Uh, you're so great and that you would do so much for us. Uh, Lord, we bless you and we thank you for this time together that we could come together and praise you, give you all honor, all glory uh, and all the things around us and, and all the people around us. And in our lives, Lord Jesus, I pray you help us to be your people. And help us to always be listening to what you're calling us into. And, uh, Lord, that we would be courageous in that and you'd give us strength uh, to be your hands in the world that we live in each day. We bless you for all these things. We lift these prayer requests up. Thank you for working in Gabriel's uh, leg. That the doctors even sound uh, amazed of how your healing is working so fast. So. Uh, it's Lord, it's when things look difficult that we know it's when you prove who you are. And that's what we pray for, Lord. There are so many others I know of personally that, that we'll mention today that you just be with those families, Lord, that, uh, Lord, we do pray for things on this earth that we're aware of, for physical healing. But above all, we pray for eternal healing in the people around us. We bless you, Jesus. 
for this amazing day that we can come and bless your holy name uh, and Lord, we praise you this morning and lift you up I, I thank you for this also the word you're going to bring us today uh, I anticipate Lord it's going to be amazing uh, because you're asking us to be humble today before your throne in your holy name we pray amen
darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt Praise forever to the King of 
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all today. Have you ever had a, a day that started out great and then suddenly it wasn't? Almost like you had pulled a muscle and now your leg hurts, but you don't know how or when that happened. On Monday of this week, I had a great start to my day. I had woken up on time. I had had a great time of worship and fellowship and study with the Lord. I felt like I was firing on all cylinders, writing good emails, catching up on reports and things like that, and then, bam, it just wasn't. And I knew after around lunchtime that something was just different, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was and what it started, but I knew that I wasn't the same as the person that started this day. And I don't know that there was anything especially wrong with my afternoon, but I knew that I was out of peace. I was out of alignment with the Lord. And it wasn't until I was going to sleep that the Lord showed me exactly when it happened. And when the Lord shows us something, we know exactly what he means, don't we? When the Lord speaks to us, we have a decision to make. And I knew exactly when it happened. I'd gotten an email from a coworker that I simply didn't approve of. It was pride. And so I responded to this email or this message uh, with some professionalism and courtesy appropriately and everything would seem all right on the surface. But deep down, I had made a decision that I thought I was right about something and the other person was wrong. And really what I had done is I had left the peace that my day started with the Lord and I'd aligned with the enemy. No one else would know about this place of pride, but God knew and the enemy knew. See, when we align with the enemy, the enemy knows it and God knows it. So I'd aligned with this place of pride that took me out of fellowship and alignment and peace with the Lord. And quite frankly, it ruined my day. Quite frankly, I was not relaxed. I was not productive. And I was not a servant to those that I work with. So today, uh, we're going to begin a new study in the New Testament book of Philippians. And what's amazing is that the Lord would give me this understanding on Monday because for weeks now, as I've been studying in this book in Philippians, the Lord has given me this two-word phrase again and again as a theme and a scope for our study, against pride, against pride, as if this letter was written against a spirit of pride. And this is interesting because I've never heard a pastor or Bible teacher or anyone reference pride being a key theme in this book of Philippians. There's too many other great coffee mug type verses, and pride really doesn't fit well on a coffee mug. But as I've read, scripture by scripture and chapter by chapter, the Lord has shown me places that are under the surface that contribute to dysfunction and disunity in God's church and it begins with pride. So I'm so grateful because the Lord would give this word, and I believe that for those who are willing, the Lord would lead us out of places of pride that corrupt his people and corrupt his spirit. 
So turn with me this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1348. Philippians chapter 1, page 1348. Now, if you flip through Philippians, it's only four short chapters, and it seems like a pretty compressed book of the Bible, but it is jam-packed with spiritual jewels. And so I'd like to take, uh, take a step to read through a few of these great scriptures because they're probably ones that we well know, ones that have been written on our heart, ones that we quote and think of often. So in chapter 1, verse 21, read with me. Paul says this in 21. He says, for me, excuse me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Turn over to to chapter 4. In verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Down to verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in verse 19, Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. These are some amazing verses, aren't they? Some amazing verses that we've heard again and again. And they're some of my favorites. And I believe that as we study their context and background and what is truly going on in this church will give far deeper meaning than we have ever, ever thought possible. And Philippians is a sum that is greater than its parts. See, each of these verses is really good. I mean, we want God to do all things in us that he can do that we want him to do, right? We want God's understanding to surpass all that we cannot understand in this world. We want a great unity in the body of Christ that we couldn't find in any other community. But when we take these out of the meaning, out of the context that they were written, we miss the purpose for which they were written. This letter was written to a specific church undergoing specific issues, just like each and every one of us today. So my prayer is that we would ask the Lord to empty our minds, empty our flesh of what we want these scriptures to say, and that we would go on a journey with him, that he would transform and change us, and that it would start with this place of pride. So what we're going to do first today is look at some of the things that influence uh, this this letter. And the first is to talk about the fact that this is a letter. Um, Philippians in your Bible, it may say something above it like the epistle or the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Sometimes it's easy to put all scripture in one category. 
whether it's ancient or cryptic or just reference material, and we kind of read it all the same, but this, this book that we're reading from was a letter. Um, a letter very different than we might read because I don't know when the last time any of you wrote a letter, but maybe you write text messages or emails. Um, that's what this is. So we're not reading a gospel. We're not reading a big book that explains everything that we're going to encounter in this world. But we're reading correspondence between Paul and a very specific church that he started with some other believers. Like any piece of communication, we as spectators, as readers, we can't know everything that was going on. And we know virtually nothing about the circumstances. And so it's important that we, we lean into what we do know and we don't read in what we don't know. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's easy to read into words that we think that we know what they mean or we assume intent or perspective on behalf of other people or we read in our baggage to scripture for what we want it to say back and we can't do that or we will miss the spirit of God. So in Paul's time, letters typically began with the name of the sender and the name of the recipient. And that seems pretty good, to and from, just like we might write an email or a text message or something like that. And they would include a brief greeting. And most of the time in this day, they would refer to the pagan gods of the day and include some kind of well-wish. So let's read, let's read here in Philippians. We'll read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 that includes these components. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So have you ever read one of the letters in the New Testament and you think, why is this so formal? Why do they need to know who's writing and why do they need to be told who is being written to? Why is there this cordial kind of respectfully and grace and peace and all of these things? Well, the first thing is that this letter was not written for us. This letter was written 2,000 years ago to a specific people. And letters were not often given by the person who wrote them. They were sent by a messenger. And so this letter was written by Paul, and it was written to a specific people. But if you think about it, there's an introduction that we have when we talk to someone. Think about even when you came in today, you might have asked a few things. How are you? It's great to see you. How are the kids? What's going on in sports? Have you heard the Cowboys are starting next week? Right? We all kind of begin with these kind of formalities. But I just love Paul. Because what he doesn't do is conform to culture. He takes what the culture has said is appropriate, which is to introduce yourself and to stay who you're writing to and give a greeting. But instead of the gods, instead of well wishes, he says these things. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, we're not like other people. We are bondservants to the Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. You're not like other people, he says. You are saints. You are called to be holy. You are called to be set apart. That's who you are. To the congregation of this type of people at the church in Philippi. 
to you, we won't just cite well wishes, hope you're well, hope the kids are well, hope sports are going well, but grace and peace to you, the fullness of what Jesus came to promise, that his grace would be upon you, that you would have fullness and wholeness in your lives, not in any other name, but by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes what culture says is the norm and he uses it in spite of that. He flips it on its head and he said, these are the things that matter. And the rest of this letter will follow suit. Paul will use a typical letter format with an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And he'll use this to convey grand things that we find nowhere else in the world. Okay, so we've talked about this this guy Paul for a few minutes and we've introduced him like he needs no other introduction but he does so who is this guy Paul when God called him you may remember his name was Saul Saul was a typical Hebrew name just like King Saul and Saul was at the top of the Jewish religious world Paul had grown up in the right area he'd gone to the right school he had um, been a great Jewish male so much show that he was opposed to Jesus and persecuting Christians. So let's read a little bit about him. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. If you're in the church's Bible, page 1264. Acts chapter 9. Okay, we're going to read several verses here, but they're really important for us to understand this man, Saul, to be named Paul. So we'll start in verse 1. Um, Luke writes here in Acts, he says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to go to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. 
Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some time with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ and the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called upon the name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So this is Paul that we read about. And it is so important that we know these things about Paul because often we just read and we say, well, the Apostle Paul, and we, we elevate him to this grand level in our mind. But Saul was once a man who persecuted believers in Jesus' name. He was a man who took great pride and great enjoyment in persecuting those like you and I who follow the name of Jesus. He was a man filled with pride and arrogance and self-confidence about what he had done in his life. And the Lord took him and took his sight and took his strength and repurposed him for the Lord's purpose. This is a man whose letter that we read from this morning. Paul seemed to have the perfect pedigree and background and experience. Let's read what Philippians says about him. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3 on page 1350 in your Bibles. We'll read verses 4 through 6. And this is Paul talking about himself to make a point, but he, he tells us the pedigree that he has. In verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. So Paul tells us that in the flesh, he's about as good as one can be. He is from Israel. He's um, of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he's from King Saul's lineage. He says, according to the law that he was a Pharisee, according to zeal, no one was more zealous than him, so much so that he persecuted the church. According to the law, he was blameless. So to me, Paul shares a story that is much like you and I. He's a guy who's got things all figured out. 
according to his own way. God gets his attention and he changes his course for his purpose. This should be the story of every believer found in Jesus' name. That we've got things figured out by our own way and God takes those ways and he says enough and he redirects us for his purpose. I think that many are... Let me say it this way. The reason it's important for us to recognize who Paul is is because many recognize these strengths about Paul and they elevate him. They say the Apostle Paul. And they elevate his background and his pedigree and they say, oh, he's such a great writer. He's such a great scholar. And they say all these things. And so God took all these great things about Paul and he just got him on target. The Lord showed me very clearly that this is untrue. In fact, Paul's experience and credentials are not necessary for God's purpose. Instead, God uses Paul in spite of these training and credentials. Think about this. Think about the irony of God taking a well-known Jewish man, well-bred, well-educated, well-known among all the Sanhedrin and all those in Jerusalem and sending him to minister to Gentiles. God said, I don't care about these things. God uses Paul's scholarly and expert opinions of understanding the truth and false teaching, heresy, and the work of the enemy and mankind. God takes all of Paul's expert opinions of Scripture so that he can expose heresy, not so he can teach what he knows. Finally, God uses Paul's great education, his top-tier Jewishness, his zealousness for what seemed right in his own mind as an example of the things that don't matter to God. This way, Paul can teach others about what does matter to God. After God changed Paul's life and repurposed him from condemning and persecuting Christians, Paul was an apostle and one who was sent out to teach Gentiles. So Paul left Jerusalem, the center of great philosophy, the center of great theology, the place where the church was birthed, where it would seem right to have Paul right there in the center of things. And he said, no, you're going to go out to the ends of the earth. Paul is a case study, an example for us to leave what we find strongholds in, to leave the things that we are proud about and confident of and hold ourselves in high esteem, to leave those places for his purpose. If you turn to the back of your Bibles, you'll probably see six to ten maps back there. Not sure whether you've ever looked through them and studied those places, but the last few say something like Paul's missionary journeys, his first, his second, and his third. So God would send Paul out of Jerusalem not once, not twice, but three times over all of the world to proclaim his name. Some 14 different churches Paul would start, and seven of them, the New Testament records letters to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. 
I don't say this to puff up Paul's name, but I say this because it reinforces exactly what we know, that God would continue to send this man away from the things that he would take strength and pride in and to the places that God would show him. Like many of the disciples and apostles, Paul is kind of a jailbird. He's under arrest for nearly five years of his ministry. Five years. He spends two and a half years in literal prison in a cell, and he spends another two and a half years under house arrest or under under escort by Roman soldiers from Jerusalem to Rome. It's during this time that Paul does some of his greatest ministry. God uses his pen and Paul to write letters to the churches that he's planted to to convince them and encourage them to stay faithful to the things that the Lord has done in their lives. So when Paul writes this letter to us, he's not sitting in an ivory tower in Jerusalem or Galatia or Ephesus. He's sitting in a jail cell under lock and key. He wasn't writing, woe is me, please send someone to encourage me, please help me, somebody write me some jokes, somebody help and get me a meal. He's writing a letter to them saying that he may soon die there, but his purpose is to encourage them in the things of the Christ. So this is Paul who we read. Timothy is another important person, and we'll talk about him for just a moment. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1274. Acts chapter 16, page 1274. We'll read verses 1 through 5, which gives kind of a quick history of Paul and Timothy's connection. In verse 1, we read, Then he came, this is Paul, to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now there's a lot in these verses that happens really quick, but what's especially relevant for us is that the Lord allowed Paul and Timothy to connect. And as soon as Paul meets Timothy, he goes, I need this guy with me. I need this guy to travel with me and do mission work and go to the places that the Lord will call us. So Timothy is the one that we know of to whom 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are written. Timothy appears in the New Testament probably as Paul's most trusted traveling companion, his most trusted assistant and co-laborer with him. Timothy was half Gentile, half Jew. His mother was Jewish. His father was Gentile. And although Paul didn't say that circumcision was required to follow Jesus, it was a necessity for ministering to those in that region. So Timothy, a grown adult, was willing 
to be circumcised for God's purpose and to leave that area to serve the Lord. He traveled with Paul during his missionary journeys. He was sent by Paul to represent Paul. He was sent to rebuke false teachings and other churches. So Timothy worked with Paul and Silas and helped found churches like Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. And Timothy was with Paul when they founded this church in Philippi. The last person we're going to talk about is named Epaphroditus. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2 to read about this man, Epaphroditus. Philippians chapter 2 on page 1350. Okay, let's read together verses 25 through 30. Paul says, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in high esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. We'll read one other place about Epaphroditus. Turn over to chapter 4, just one page over. We'll read in verse 14 through 18. Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds in your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, receiving from Epaphroditus the things sent from a sweet-smelling, excuse me, the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Okay, so we've read two passages about this man, Epaphroditus, and he was a messenger commissioned by the Philippian church. So Paul's in prison, and um, he's suffering for sure. The Philippian church sends this man, Epaphroditus, they commission him a messenger. He is a believer, but he is one that they have paid to take money and support to Paul in prison. Along the way, Epaphroditus becomes ill, sick unto death, Paul says. Somehow the Philippian church even finds out about this. But Epaphroditus happens to make it to Paul. He's supposed to stay there with him, give him the money, and just support him in what the Lord's doing while Paul is in prison. Paul says, no, this is not the way. You need to get back where you can have proper care. I want to thank you for this, but I want to send you back with a letter for the Philippian church. So Paul writes the letter that we read in Philippians. He gives it to Epaphroditus. He sends him back to Philippi. 
Okay, so that's who these three men are. We've got Paul, we've got Timothy, and we've got Epaphroditus, and I promise this is coming together and it's going to make good sense why these men are important. One reason it's important to understand who they are is because we can either read about them and esteem them without really understanding who they are. Or we can act like these are just people just like you and I. They are people who deserve esteem spiritually. But they're only like you and I if we're willing to give up our lives for the sake of the Lord. If we're willing to leave what the Lord calls us to leave and do what the Lord calls us to do. If we're willing to go to brothers and sisters in Jesus' name unto death if that's what it requires. If we're willing to come back with a letter that we don't really know what it contains for other believers in Jesus' name. These are people who are submissive to the Lord, humble to the Lord, without pride unto the Lord, unto death in this life. These are followers of the Lord. So the church at Philippi, we're going to turn and read a little bit in Acts chapter 16. I guess I should have said keep markers in Acts chapter 16 and Philippians because that's where we're going. Acts chapter 16 is back on page 1274. If you're looking for a place to read throughout the week, Acts chapter 16 and 17 are great because they really do chronicle the starting of the church in Philippi and all of the things that we're going to read in the letter to the Philippians are rooted in things that, that take place here in 16 and 17 of Acts. Okay, we're going to talk about a few things. The first is that the Apostle Paul um, was submitted to the Lord, but there was also some things he wanted to do. And one of those things was that he wanted to take the gospel to Asia, to a particular area called Bithynia. So much so that he, he tried to find his way there again and again. But out of God's love and mercy, the Lord would not let that happen. So again and again, the Lord stopped Paul from heading to this place. He shipwrecked him, he had him end up on different continents, and ultimately, the Lord got his way because Paul did relent to what the Lord wanted to do. So, God forced his hand. We can read about this in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 16. Actually, 6, 7. Well, let's just read 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come into Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, that's, that's Asia where Paul wanted to go, but the Spirit did not permit them. So twice now, in just a few verses, we see the Spirit would not permit them. So passing by Messina, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia, help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul wanted to go to Asia. The Lord wouldn't let it happen. Paul wanted to go to Asia again. The Lord refused to permit the Spirit to allow them to go there. So then the Lord has greater mercy on Paul. He gives him a night vision. And in the vision, there's a man from Macedonia, which is really in the region where Philippi is. And this man from Macedonia says, please come and help us. 
immediately Paul receives this word and their course of action is to go there. So in Macedonia, which is what we might call Greece, Paul chose this city, Philippi, to start a church. Now, it was, it was Paul's kind of MO to follow what Jesus did. You know, Jesus went around in the, in the Gospels. He would go into a synagogue and begin to teach to them. And so that's what Paul's custom was. He would go into a city like Ephesus or Galatia, and he would find the synagogue where um, Jewish men and women had gathered to study Torah, and he would begin to teach them. But he comes to Philippi, and there is no synagogue. Philippi is a key city in the region. It's a city that is still speaking Latin, which was pretty out of date at that point. They are so committed to their Roman roots. They're so committed to pagan ideology. They're so committed to their own way that there was no synagogue that could survive in that city. So Paul, Timothy, and Silas, um, well, let's just read there. Let's read down in... We're going to go in 16, verse 13. And it was on the Sabbath day, so of course this was the day that Paul was looking to go into the synagogue. We were out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged to us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Lydia is a woman who heard Paul's, Paul's message about the Christ. She was immediately baptized because she received it, and her family was baptized. And she said, Please come stay in my house, not because she was an innkeeper, but because she desperately wanted Paul to help start a church of Jesus Christ in that city. And it would. It would start in Lydia's church, and it would grow. So Paul and Timothy and Silas were only there a few days. Scripture doesn't tell us how many, but most Bible teachers think just a week, maybe two. So in two weeks, Paul and Timothy and Silas start this church. They would become a diverse group of believers that included three people, three families. Lydia and her family a jailer and his family, and a slave girl who had been possessed. Now think about these three people. A slave girl that had been possessed, a jailer and his family that we should say did incarcerate Paul and Timothy and Silas, but that's for another day, and this woman, Lydia, who was super wealthy. These are three people who don't need Jesus in their mind, right? Someone who's possessed by the enemy doesn't need Jesus. Someone who is incarcerating God's people doesn't need Jesus. Somebody who is so wealthy that she's got several people working for her and has a home big enough to start a church. Paul and Timothy and Silas were there just a few weeks before they were asked to leave by the city magistrates. They were absolutely run out of town. Philippi is one of Paul's favorite churches. Favorite churches. He writes to them in a way he does not write to any other church. 
Every other church, Paul comes in hot with the heresies they've received, with the things that they have embraced, with how they have run away from the gospel, but this church, Paul, has a different tone. But Paul's tone has a goal. What amazes me is the diversity that is in this church. That they would be called together in such a short time. So this is the church in Philippi, and 10 years after its founding, Paul writes this letter. 10 years after this, Epaphroditus is sent to Paul in prison, and Epaphroditus is sent back with this letter that we read about. So the reason that Paul writes this letter are many. He first takes the opportunity to basically say that Epaphroditus deserves a hero's welcome. Paul's really not about taking credit for himself. He's not about elevating people, but he does believe that Epaphroditus deserves really a hero's welcome as he returns because he's almost died bringing this support to Paul. He wants to warn the Philippians about the other errors that the churches that he's planted have committed. He wants to share about some of the things that he's seen in Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia and churches like that. But the big reason is to urge the Philippians not to be divided from the Spirit. Urge them not to be divided from the Spirit. Now, he has not said that they have been divided from the Spirit. And that's why I say this letter takes a different tone. Every other letter, Paul is absolutely making indictments about what has been done. But instead, to them, he says, don't let this happen. And that's the message that the Lord has for us today, is unity in the Spirit. Now, I know we've already talked a long time, so we're going to keep this message pretty short. But we talked about Epaphroditus and how he went to Paul, and he definitely sat down with Paul and told Paul the things that were going on in this church, right? I mean, he'd come all that way. Surely Paul wants to know how they're doing. How's Susan doing? How's Deborah doing? How is Raul and Nina doing? He wants to know the things that are going on, and so Epaphroditus tells him. However, there's one thing that Paul definitely wants to address and isn't happy about, and it's this potential for leaving unity in the spirit. There was a quarrel between two members, Euodia and Syntyche, that had affected the whole church. So imagine Euodia over here and Syntyche over here, and they have a disagreement about something, and it's a strong disagreement because it is dividing the church. So since this letter was written to a church who full well knows about this issue, there was no reason for Paul to make a big, bold statement at the beginning and say, against Judea and Syntyche and the disunity and the spirit, but Paul does address it. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We'll read together in verse 2. Page 1351 if you're on the church's Bible. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, my beloved, and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Judea and Syntyche, 
to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is Paul's message to these two that have a disagreement that is going to divide the church. To be of the same mind in the Lord. It's important we notice that Paul doesn't address what it is. He doesn't really seem to care whether they've disagreed on the color of the chairs for the church, whether they like the food that's being made for Shabbat services. He tells them not just to get along. He instead tells them to be of the same mind. The idea of Christian unity today is very popular and it sounds good. However, I believe there is a tendency to massage scripture towards this idea that can have a devastating effect. That is that as people are united together, they are divided from the spirit. The two are not the same. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1345, Ephesians chapter 4. Just a few pages back. In chapter 4, most of Paul's message describes how the Holy Spirit functions in believers. Now I should say it's written by Paul, the same guy who's writing Philippians. It's a few years later, but this is the same Paul writing on similar things. We'll read together verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So what Paul's saying to this church in Ephesus is a few things. First, he's saying you should walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Basically, walk like believers. You know who believers are. You should walk like them. He cites spiritual gifts like humbleness and long-suffering and love, synonyms that we read of in his other letters to say this is what someone being led by the Spirit acts like and walks like and possesses humbleness and long-suffering and love. And then he says that you should endeavor, that you should work hard, that you should be intent on keeping unity. Now this passage is a common one used to describe how believers are to act in order to be unified, right? In order to look right, in order to not be divided, in order to be one, they are to, to do these things. Does that sound about right? However, when this passage is used in this way, it is twisting and manipulating scripture because it doesn't say we are to endeavor to keep unity. It says in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit, the spirit. There are not multiple spirits of God. There is one spirit of God that functions according to the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And it's why Paul goes on to say one body and one Christ, and one Father, and one Spirit. We were not created for our purpose, and our opinion, and our perspective, and our way, and created to come together and figure out how to not disagree on things. 
we were created to come together in oneness in his spirit alone for his purpose. We can act like believers, even possess what look like spiritual gifts, and even act like others in the church and be completely void of unity both as individuals and as a body in the Spirit of God. The same Paul who wrote this letter in Ephesians wrote the letter to Philippians to address these two, Judea and Syntyche. Let's turn back there and read also what he says to them in Philippians chapter 1 on page 1349. Paul's going to tell us similar things like act like believers and walk in spiritual gifts. Let's read beginning in chapter 1 verse 27. We'll read through chapter 2 verse 4. Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, proof of loss, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me here, excuse me, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if my affection, mercy, Excuse me, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. But each of you look out for not only your own self-interest, but also for the interest of others. I want to keep going because this is so powerful. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, there is a false teaching that is out there that as long as we love one another, as long as we love the world, that unity will prevail and that all will be well, and this is a lie. If you're curious if this is a lie, go out into the world and see if unity and love are prevailing and all is well. The truth is that Jesus came to overcome the works of the enemy. We are called to do the same. This begins with us as individuals who are called by his name and at unity with his spirit. 
we are strengthened as believers as we unite together, not in our sin, not in our opinions, not on what brings us stronger and makes us healthier together, but by his spirit and his name for his purpose alone. I pray that today that we would individually and collectively receive this word, that we would walk in a manner manner worthy of our calling, that we would walk according to the gifts of the Spirit, that we would walk in the unity of the one and only Spirit, and that we would strive together for the gospel's sake, for this place and for the end of the earth. Amen. Just his hands been sad.